and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we're starting in the year 2028. Do we have contact with the satellite? Not yet. When do we start to panic? Tomorrow, probably. Copy. Satellite contacted. We're going to have to execute a maneuver. Why us? Satellite's defunct and uncooperative. Great. Instructions incoming. Nearing path of closest approach. T-minus 90 seconds. Reduction wheels still at idle. Thruster duty cycle is consistent with expected values. Copy all. Calculate total burn duration. Estimated burn duration is 17 thruster seconds. Primary burn complete. Verified one second maneuver. Copy. Maneuver complete. Good day from the International Space Station Flight Control Room here at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, which in the wee hours of a Saturday morning would usually be somewhat devoid of activity on a crew off-duty day, but this morning is the scene of cautionary vigilance as Flight Director Chris Edelin and his Orbit 1 team of flight controllers monitor the approach of a small chunk of space debris in the vicinity of the station that prompted the precautionary sheltering of the six crew members in their respective Soyuz spacecraft. Late Friday night, Flight Director Jerry Jason decided to place the station crew in their Soyuz vehicles for a short period of time after ballistic specialists received data that showed a remote possibility of a conjunction with a small piece of a Russian Cosmos satellite. I don't see anything, which is the good news. Flight controller standing by here in mission control, just 30 seconds to go until the time of closest approach. Okay, so this episode is a future in which the space around Earth has become so full of stuff that satellites are constantly having to maneuver around all of it. And this future is actually not that far off. We might think of space as this vast emptiness, but the space surrounding Earth is actually full of stuff. And most of it is garbage. Space junk is what people call it. Space junk is all the stuff that we put into space and left up there without bringing it back down intentionally. My name is Lauren Grush, and I am a science reporter specializing in space at TheVerge.com. The official NASA definition of space junk is, quote, any man-made object in orbit around Earth which no longer serves a useful function. So it runs from things like satellites that we've put up there and that have run out of fuel and we can't control them anymore, or the stages of rockets. So those are the upper portions of rockets that 
push satellites further into orbit and space and they don't come back down. So they just kind of stick around up there. And it can also be just things that come off of space vehicles over time. So like panels or even flecks of paint. And then there's some kind of like funky stuff too. Like I believe at one point Gene Rodenberry's ashes were up there (laughs) in orbit for a while. And also, you know, um, things that have been dropped during spacewalks from astronauts. So um, someone lost their tool bag during a spacewalk one time. So that's also a space debris. There's also some grosser stuff. We wanted to talk about the pee. I loved the space pee. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the pee. (laughs) So astronauts dispose of all their trash by filling them into these cargo capsules that go to the space station, and then they'll send them down to Earth and it'll burn up in the atmosphere. But before that happened, uh, astronauts used to dump their pee out of the space station and off the shuttle. And so they would immediately freeze and turn into these beautiful crystals of urine. (laughs) And those became space debris as well. The pee from those earlier space flights has probably burned up by now, but the other junk is still up there. And when I say up there, here's what I mean. Most of what humans put up into space around Earth goes into something called low Earth orbit, which is the region between 160 and 2,000 kilometers above Earth, or 99 to 1,200 miles. The vast majority of space junk is in low Earth orbit, so that's mostly the region that we're going to talk about when we talk about space junk, because that's where most of the problems will arise. To try and predict and avoid those problems, scientists have to track the space junk that's out there. But they can't track all of it. The tiny stuff, like the flecks of paint, are too small for even really advanced sensors to keep track of. The ground-based telescopes that we use to track debris can only track things down to about 10 centimeters in size, and the analogy is about the size of a softball or baseball. So theoretically, we think there's millions up there, but we only are tracking about 22,000 pieces of debris right now. And countries have to track this stuff because if one of their satellites or space stations collides with a piece of space junk, it can be totally catastrophic. Things in lower Earth orbit are typically going about 17,000 miles per hour. So even if you do have something tiny floating around up there, it's not really floating. It's speeding around Earth at super high speeds. So if that hits you, you know, just even the smallest piece of debris can cause a, a big impact. Right now, every new launch into space has to take into account whatever might still be in orbit around the planet, whether that's an active satellite or a piece of debris from a defunct mission. Launch trajectories have to be calculated to avoid collisions with orbital debris. But satellites that are currently in orbit also have to be careful. In 2009, for example, a collision between two satellites created thousands of new pieces of space junk. The Cosmos satellite was owned by the Russian Space Forces, and the Iridium satellite is owned by a communications company called Iridium. And Iridium was still active. It still had propulsion, but the Cosmos satellite did not. And so once you run out of fuel, you obviously can't control how it works anymore in space. And then they ended up colliding, and it it put thousands of pieces of debris into low Earth orbit. In 2012, the Fermi mission had to use the spacecraft's thrusters to avoid colliding with an old Soviet spy satellite called Cosmos 1805. And things are about to get a whole lot more crowded up there. 
With the boom in private space companies like SpaceX, there are a lot more things going into space these days than there used to be. Thousands of new satellites and CubeSats and other devices are set to launch in the next 10 years. And experts warn that if we don't do something about space junk soon, we might wind up in a situation where the space surrounding Earth becomes too hazardous to traverse. The big thing that everybody points to is this thing called the Kessler syndrome. And it's this idea that if you put too much junk into space and they collide, well, they can create more pieces of debris. And then those pieces of debris are, so, are going super fast and they can run into other things and cause kind of this avalanche effect where you just have so many things in low Earth orbit that it becomes pretty uh, inhospitable to future spacecraft. So then we wouldn't be able to put things up there anymore. If you've seen the movie Gravity, you are familiar with this concept, right? In the movie, Sandra Bullock and George Clooney are trying to stay alive after a chain reaction of collisions send debris hurtling their way and destroy their shuttle and telescope. We're definitely not at that level yet, but that's kind of the concern of why we need to mitigate this problem now. So it might seem like this space junk problem is a new one, right? The common story goes like this. When humans started sending stuff into space in the 1950s, starting with Sputnik, they didn't really think about cluttering up space. They weren't thinking about or talking about space junk because there was really nothing in space to begin with. But now, all these years later, we're starting to realize that we've created a problem. The thing is, this story, that we only started thinking about and caring about space junk recently, actually isn't true. Even at the very start of my research, I came to see that that was far too simplistic a picture, that in fact we'd been thinking about space junk since the very beginning of the space age. My name is Lisa Ruth Rand. I am a historian of science, technology, and the environment, and I am currently writing a book about the history of space junk and how space junk became seen as an environmental problem during the Cold War. Take, for example, Project Westford. It was originally called Project Needles, and it was designed to be a satellite communication system that would be resilient in the case of a certain kind of nuclear war. It was first tested in 1961, it, was, it did not succeed, and then it was successfully tested in 1963. Essentially, Americans were worried that in the case of a nuclear war, all the fallout might make radio communications on the ground unstable. So they wanted to install a communication system that they could rely on in space. And the solution that they came up with was kind of strange, but also kind of genius. Westford consisted of 400 million copper fibers that were thinner than a human hair and only a few centimeters long each. And they were placed into a 3,500-kilometer orbit in a band around the planet. These copper fibers, which many people called needles, were dipole antennas. The idea was that if you put a bunch of these tiny antennas in a band around Earth, you could bounce radio waves off of them and use them to communicate. The nice thing about this system was that because it was a whole bunch of individual pieces, it was really hard to destroy. If you have a field of hundreds of millions of copper fibers, you're not going to take out that whole thing with one nuke necessarily. A, you could put up a new one really quickly, or B, you know, that the field would congeal and fill gaps. Plus, the copper dipoles, the needles, were cheap and easy to produce, and it was relatively easy to launch them up into space. In many ways, this was a really interesting project and one that I argue was a pretty elegant solution to a geopolitical reality of the time. But as soon as the project was publicly announced, people started asking questions about what the impact of putting all of these pieces of copper up in space might be. 
The first detractors were the astronomers. Their main concern was what would happen if, if such a test was successful and this dipole communications method became the norm. What would happen if they sent up, let's say the Air Force decided they need to send up a fully functional system, which would require a much denser belt of needles around the equator and the poles? And then what would happen if Russia or the Soviet Union decided they wanted one too? What if Europe wanted one? Suddenly we'd have a sky filled with copper dipoles. And astronomers went in hard against Project Westford. They were not messing around with their complaints. I have a letter from one astronomer saying that if, if astronomers didn't take firm action against Westford, it would be akin to Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler in the lead up to World War II. I mean, they really took this seriously. Astronomers protested Project Westford so vocally that they actually wound up taking it to the floor of the United Nations. The U.S. State Department had to get involved in negotiating between the astronomers and you know, the Department of Defense. And you know, this international community of scientists really raised the alarm about what could happen if states were allowed to just launch anything willy-nilly without consulting with the scientific community first to make sure that it would not cause any sort of environmental harm. But it wasn't just scientists who didn't like the idea of throwing up all of these needles. The public got really invested in this, too. And this was in part because right around the same time that Project Westford was being tested, something else was happening in the United States. So the first one launched in 1961, the second in 1963. And then the middle, in 1962, was the publication of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson which was seen as, continues to be seen as really a major turning point uh, in what came to be mainstream environmentalism. One of the big themes of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, is this idea of invisible pollution. She's mostly talking about pollution from chemicals and nuclear waste, but you could see space junk as another form of invisible pollution, right? You can't see it. Ruth also points out in her work that a year after Project Westford's second launch, the United States passed the Wilderness Act of 1964. And she notes that space can kind of actually fit the description of wilderness defined by that bill, which was, quote, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain, end quote. That describes space pretty well, right? So Project Westford became emblematic of space junk in the 1960s. This became a very, uh, a big story in presses, in, in mainstream presses around the world. A lot of editorials pushing back against what they refer to as the cluttering of littering in space. Newspapers all over the United States and abroad wrote about this project polluting near-Earth orbit. There was a story in a Soviet newspaper with the headline, USA Dirties Space. And this conversation about space junk and the idea that we could be polluting our orbits never went away. Space junk was such a topic of conversation that the band Devo actually wrote a song about it in 1978. Today, there are actually still some of the Project Westford needles up in space. They were supposed to come down naturally, but some of them clumped together and remain stubbornly orbiting our planet. Anyone who's, who's a geek like I am and likes to go online and try some of the um, space tracking software that's freely available, if you put in Westford, you can see that, that there are clumps that are cataloged, and you can see where they are in real time, still you know, a couple thousand kilometers above our heads. 
Okay, so fast forward to today, or flash forward, if you will. I don't think I've ever used that joke on the show, and I think I've now used up my one flash forward joke quota. Um, But today, we are still having this conversation about space junk and how to responsibly manage all of the stuff up there. Most people agree that if we want to continue to launch satellites and other stuff up into orbit, we are going to have to do something about all of the junk up there. The question isn't whether we should do something, but instead, what exactly we should do. There's so many different ones, and they're also very creative. That's Lauren Grush again. People have talked about using a harpoon to literally, you know, spike the satellites and then use um, some kind of sail to drag them down. Space lasers have been proposed as a way of heating up the spacecraft and, and shifting its orbit. There are a lot of different methods that have been proposed, and no one can really quite um, agree on the best one just yet. And when we come back, we're going to talk about all of the ways that space agencies have proposed pulling some of this junk down. And we're also going to hear from an archaeologist about why maybe we should leave some of it up there. Plus, if two satellites collide, who's responsible? All that and more after this quick break. Okay, so space junk has been an issue for a long time, but now we are going to try and do something about it. Now, even if we didn't do anything about space junk, the planet would actually help us out a little bit. Three cheers for the atmosphere. The atmosphere does so much for us in terms of cleaning up our messes within the atmosphere, you know, on the ground, but also it cleans up our messes in outer space. But basically our atmosphere uh, expands and contracts along the 11-year solar cycle. So the sun sends out more or less energy along that relatively predictable cycle. Uh, At moments of high energy, it's called solar maximum. And at lower points where it's sending out less energy, that's called solar minimum. And at solar maximum, the sun sends out a lot of extra energy. The uh, Earth's atmosphere heats up and expands into space. So more objects are are, are subject to that friction, to the atmospheric particles, to that friction, and re-enter the atmosphere. Basically, every 11 years, the atmosphere of the Earth gets a little bit hotter, which puffs up the atmosphere a little bit, and that puffed-up atmosphere provides extra drag on the debris in low Earth orbit. That drag pulls down some of those objects, most of which burn up in the atmosphere as they're dragged down. It's very much, again, an ecosystemic kind of exchange, and it's one that we don't have any control over, but we're very, very lucky takes place, because if it didn't, uh, low Earth orbit would be far more crowded than it is today. I like to think of this as the Earth's menstrual cycle. (laughs) The 11-year menstrual cycle, yes. Can you imagine every 11 years? (laughs) But that solar cycle can't do everything for us. And most experts think that we should start actively removing things from space. But how? For all of the things that we've launched up into orbit around Earth, we've actually never gone out into space and pulled anything down. A capture of an uncooperative object in space hasn't been done before. This is Andrew Wollahan, a systems engineer at the European Space Agency. Andrew works on a project called eDeorbit, which has been trying to figure out the best way to take down a defunct satellite. Or in technical speak, an uncooperative object. And these uncooperative objects, they aren't going to go quietly. After years of hurtling through space, these objects might have started to slowly fall apart. Or they might have been hit by space debris already and broken. 
And any of those things can make these uncooperative objects start to spin. And this can range from 0.1, 0.2 degrees per second to I think we've even observed satellites spinning at 20 degrees per second. So here's the challenge. You have an object hurtling through space at 17,000 miles per hour. It's also spinning, and you don't necessarily know how fast it's spinning, or even whether it's still going to be spinning at the same speed by the time you get there. And you have to go up and try and grab this object and bring it down to Earth without running into any of the other things that are also orbiting Earth. No problem, right? There have been all kinds of proposed solutions here, and Andrew and his team looked at a lot of them. We started with the idea, of course, a robotic arm. Then we looked at some more exotic ideas, like using a fishing net or some sort of net type thing that has been around, of course, for thousands of years and has been re-engineered by humans many times. We also looked at using a harpoon to shoot and grab the, grab the target. And then we studied some other concepts like using glue or hooks or straps or something else or a type of spider web concept where we'd fly around the satellite with some sort of silk and then wrap it up slowly. You might remember that Lauren also mentioned this harpoon idea, but Andrew and his team at ESA actually rejected the harpoon idea pretty quickly. One of the biggest issues, though, with the harpoon concept is that the satellite that we want to capture, the satellite will have been on orbit for 15 or 20 years, and the material on the surface of the spacecraft will have been going in and out of sunlight, will have been thermally heated up and cooled to very extreme temperatures. These conditions can be really, really hard on even the strongest materials. But there's no good way for scientists like Andrew to simulate how these conditions specifically impact each material. They can't even accurately model what each material might be like at this point. Which means that when they shoot the debris with a harpoon, they're not exactly sure what might happen. So there's a risk that if we shoot a satellite with a harpoon, that we don't know really what the surface structure of the spacecraft, what's going to happen to this. So we could get some sort of fragmentation of the the structure, and then the harpoon may not be effective at all. So now Andrew's team at ESA are really focused on two different possible debris removal techniques a net, and an arm. And both of them present their own unique challenges. So let's start with the net. The pro for the net is that you don't have to get as close to the thing that you're trying to grab. With the net, we can sit about 50 meters or 100 meters away from the, from the target that we want to capture. We can then shoot it from 50 meters or 100 meters away. There's no risk of collision during the actual capture. But the challenge with the net is that once you shoot out the net and grab the target, you now have a spinning object in a net that is tied to your spacecraft. But the minute it successfully wraps around the target, we start to get this winding effect. So the, let's say with the net, it's very easy to capture the satellite. But once, you're, once you've captured the satellite, it's very difficult to stabilize the two systems. And then the other thing is once you've stabilized it, you need to move it from point A to point B. The other proposed method that they're looking at is a robotic arm. This requires your recon spacecraft to get really, really close to the object that it wants to capture. Here, once you've captured the target, it's quite simple because there's no risk of collision. But the biggest challenge is actually performing the capture because the target, again, is spinning. So we need to approach it. If we imagine we have a four meter long or five meter long robotic arm, we need to get maybe two meters surface to surface, like two meters distance from the, from the target spacecraft. And and as we're approaching it, because it's spinning it, we need to actually start performing what we call synchronized motion. So it's almost like a synchronized dance where we're uh, tracking the target and specifically a capture point that we've identified. 
This capture point that Andrew mentioned, it's actually a big piece of this problem, right? You need to grab onto this piece of junk, but where is the best place to grab? eDorbit, the project that Andrew works on, is specifically using a spacecraft called Envisat as their case study. Envisat was launched in 2002, and it's an 8-ton satellite that carried with it 10 different instruments for observing the Earth. But in 2012, ESA unexpectedly lost contact with the satellite, and they were never able to get it back. So now this 8-ton behemoth is orbiting Earth, doing nothing, basically. And it's in a really precarious orbit, too. It's where a lot of other spacecraft would actually really like to be. Because Envisat is an ESA spacecraft, they have a ton of information about how it works and what it looks like, including detailed 3D models of the satellite itself. So for this robotic arm approach, they know exactly where they want to grab the satellite. For ED orbit, we want to grab the Envisat launch adapter ring. So this is the the ring that's designed on the spacecraft to transfer the launch loads. So generally it's quite robust and we have a lot of information on the materials, etc. So they grab onto the launch adapter ring and then they have to use thrust to slow down the captured satellite and bring it down to Earth. And this is a very complex option in terms of the robotics, robotic controller, and also the, let's say, controller that's moving the spacecraft in the synchronized motion as to who is driving the system. As if this all doesn't sound complicated enough, There's more. During this whole maneuver, they might actually not even be able to communicate with the ground. And all of this is done, let's say, on orbit. And the actual capture process itself takes about 30 minutes. And when we're in this synchronized motion flying around Envisat, we can't guarantee that uh, on ground we're going to be able to actually communicate or uh, talk to or provide commands to the chaser, the chaser that's performing the capture. So yeah, this is really complicated and really hard. But Andrew thinks that it's doable in the near future. If the money wasn't a question and somebody gave us the money to do it today, we'd probably be able to launch a satellite within six years capable of capturing Envisat or uh, another spacecraft. But even if he's right, that actually won't be enough. We can develop technology that can remove uh, debris in the future, the most risky ones or so. But if we keep polluting, there's no point on doing that because it would be every mission we remove, we would have tens of others that uh, have to stay, would stay in orbit. Removing one satellite will not make the difference. This is Tiago Suarez. He also works at ESA, but he focuses mostly on the other side of the space debris question which is figuring out how to reduce the amount of junk that we leave up there in the first place. And a lot of that work has to do with how scientists design their spacecraft. For example, Andrew's project is using the Envisat as a test case. And with Envisat, they know a lot about the satellite, right? What to look for, what it looks like, and where they can grab onto. But that's not the case with a lot of the junk up there. They don't have let's say, visual marks uh, that allow us to, to rendezvous with them. So we have to, to go with a lot of uncertainty. We don't know if the parts of the satellite have broken or not. So to do the navigation around it, know exactly where your satellite is with respect to the other is extremely hard. They also don't have any capture point. So we have to go to try to figure out out of their configuration a, a capture point. Future spacecraft should have visual markers on them to help removal craft orient themselves, and they should also have designated grabbing points. Tiago and his team also propose that satellites actually stick to their designated lifespans, instead of trying to squeeze every last minute out of their operating time. Often, even if a satellite has a plan for its end of life, 
the people operating that satellite will try to push that date back as far as possible, often until it's too late. Uh, once you launch a satellite, uh, what comes after is, is what you build it for, of course, is its function, is also, also what you sell. Even if the satellites had been designed to the orbit at the end of life, many, uh, I mean, in a majority of the cases, they would not be the orbit at the, at the end of life because uh, people would extend the operations indefinitely. Tiago also says that satellites should be designed to burn up in the atmosphere as they come down to Earth, so nothing falls in the wrong place and hurts someone. That means designing a spacecraft to break up in certain ways and re-enter the atmosphere in a specific sequence that maximizes the incineration potential. For certain equipment that are more critical, like tanks, uh, they would survive the, re- the re-entry and hit the ground. Uh, we try to design them with a different material that uh, will melt during the re-entry, or we try to have weak links that will break the structure of certain mechanisms or certain equipment that we see more critical to make sure that they will melt during the re-entry. Right now, there are a handful of technologies that can help out with this kind of re-entry, like something called a Terminator sail, which is a very cool name. And there are some spacecraft in space now who have these kinds of end-of-life technologies. But we won't know if they work for a while. So, you know, one of the difficulties we have with these technologies is that if we put them on board, we will only know if they work uh, 15 years later, uh, because we have to wait for the satellite to be decommissioned to, to know if it worked. And if a satellite doesn't burn up on re-entry, that's when space junk turns into terrestrial junk. And that is a whole other problem that we don't actually quite have time to delve into on this episode. But patrons are actually going to get more about that side of things in the special Patreon newsletter this week. So if you sign up as a $2 and up patron, uh, you can learn more about how a Russian nuclear reactor fell out of the sky and into a remote region of Canada and how the environmental pollution from that incident impacted the First Nations people who lived there. Suddenly you have this, what looks like an invasion force coming into your small town and people who look like a yellow Darth Vader coming in and saying, you can't leave your house, you have to stay home, you can't go to your nets, you can't go to your traps, Um, something has happened. And what do you do if, say, you only speak Inuktitut and you don't understand what's going on? More on that in the Patreon newsletter. Okay, back to Tiago. All of these new design choices to make satellites and spacecraft more eco-friendly, they take time and money to research and implement. In ESA, uh, we also have a mandatory implementation of all these rules to all the satellites we launch. And we had even a case where a satellite was going to, was already uh, in the critical design review, so in the last review, and they had to change very very significantly the design because they were not compliant with the maximum uh, casualty on ground. It's really a whole new way of thinking about satellites. And uh, this is a really new field because in the past we have always been designing satellites to survive and now we are trying to design satellites so that in certain conditions they completely disappear, (laughs) They, they vaporize. But not everybody thinks that we should vaporize all of our past satellites and spacecraft. I would be sad because I do want to see this stuff. There's, there's really the issue of authenticity is at the heart of this. For archaeologists, touching some ancient artifact that no person 
has touched for 6,000 years is an incredibly potent thing. Being in the presence of a historic ancient satellite like like Vanguard One or like Telstar One, being in the presence of the real thing, not just a model in a museum or a mock-up somewhere, like that's just such an incredibly powerful thing. I'm Alice Gorman. I'm a senior lecturer at Flinders University in Adelaide in South Australia. I'm an archaeologist and the focus of my research is stuff in space. Yes, that's right, a space archaeologist. I had no clue that this was even a thing until I found Alice's work. And it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Normally people don't think of contemporary rubbish as archaeological artifacts, so we ignore that and we look for the, you know, the 18th century ceramics or the 6,000-year-old stone tool. But if you look at contemporary rubbish as a source of archaeological information, suddenly you see all these other things. What Alice does is study objects that not only were created in the very near past, but also objects that are out in space that she can't actually hold or touch. Now, you might be wondering, as I did when I first encountered this work, uh, wait a minute. Archaeology is a field where researchers find really old stuff and they try to figure out what that really old stuff is and what it can tell us about a culture or people that we don't know very much about. But in this case, we know a lot about these objects, right? We know what they were used for. We know who made them. Plenty of those people are still alive, even. But Alice argues that applying an archaeological lens to this stuff can often unearth hidden layers, things that we think we know, but we don't actually know. People say they're doing things for these reasons, but often they're not aware of the deeper reasons why they're doing something. I think, I think well, actually the best way to illustrate this sort of thing is, is people may have seen a film called The Devil Wears Prada, and there's a famous scene in that where Miranda Priestley, played by Meryl Streep, is explaining to the young Andy, her assistant, why what she thinks is her choice of a blue jumper to wear that day is just a, a meaningless choice. And Miranda explains how the colours for that season were in fact determined some years before by some of the world's leading designers. Oh, okay, I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact... You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. And it's actually, it's a beautiful piece in the film and it it, it illustrates exactly what it is that 
archaeology does. It looks at the reasons why people make decisions and what is the bigger picture behind them that that person may not even be aware of. So take, for example, different tracking stations built in the 1960s. NASA built one in Canberra in Australia, and Alice has done a lot of work on that site, looking at it from an archaeological perspective. But I also started to look at some French tracking stations. And what I found really, really interesting there was that they had a completely different style. So in some ways, the functions of the infrastructure were identical. You had some kind of antenna that was pulling down the signals from space, putting them through signal processing and modulating and all of that into the computer where they get turned into data. So all of that is the same thing that's happening. But when you look at the physical construction of both of these sites, they're incredibly different. And you could say one has an American style and one has a French style. So these are sort of cultural choices of the kind that are evident at the archaeological scale. This kind of analysis can be made of space junk, too. It's the classic cliché. One person's trash is another person's treasure. And for Alice, defunct satellites, pieces of space debris, even paint chips, they all have an archaeological value. They're not pieces of junk. They're more than that. Junk is a, it's a bit too simple. And, you know, it was fine for a while. Junk is a great term to get people aware of what some of the environmental issues are around having so much space junk up there. But it's maybe a good time to kind of think about the complexities of that a little bit more. So Alice would actually love to see some of the space junk stay in space so that it can be studied. She sees it as cultural heritage, the same as a historic building or an archaeological site. Of course, Alice also recognizes that some space junk can be dangerous, and she's not advocating that we keep things up there that are going to cause damage. It is a very serious problem, and we do need to get rid of some of that stuff. So if something looks like it is going to become a high collision risk, okay, we have to do something about that, and that may involve taking it out of orbit. But until we have to do that, we shouldn't preemptively do it. What I want to do is work out what is culturally significant and leave it up there. Archaeologists determine the cultural value of something using a five-point system. Which are historic, aesthetic, social, spiritual, and scientific. I guess we're kind of trying to predict in the present what future generations are going to be grateful for what they're going to say, oh, I'm, I'm glad you thought to try and preserve this because now it's really important to us. So you're not always going to be able to predict that accurately, but we have to give it a go. And Alice thinks that future generations will thank us for not just blowing everything up. If we think forward 500 years into the future, will there be anything left of this early space age? Will people look back at Earth orbit and see some recent um, satellites and wonder where all the early ones are and what they looked like. Because 500 years from now, you can bet all of those records that exist currently won't be around. The digital stuff will be unreadable. A lot of it will have been corrupted. Maybe all there will be 500 years from now are the actual 
bits of stuff in Earth orbit themselves. So part of this, I think, is just about trying to make responsible decisions for the future in the best way that we can. So if Alice gets her way, there will still be stuff up in space. Our trash stays there so that people can study it and learn from it. But what happens if that trash actually does collide with something? Who's responsible for that collision? But it's difficult is to prove who is wrong, because uh, imagine two satellites collide, like happened between uh, you know, Cosmos and Iridium, the Russian and the American satellites in the past. Yeah. Who is to blame? I mean, uh, one, one was non-operational, uh, the other decided not to move. Uh, so uh, one can say, yeah, I was not operational, what do you want me to do? The other can say, yeah, we've decided not to move. So uh, and then this generated thousands and thousands of debris that are let's say, annoying everybody else uh, and the operations of everybody else. But who is to blame in all of this? It's difficult in space. In all of international law, there's not an obvious enforcement mechanism in a lot of cases, and particularly when it comes to outer space, there isn't. This is Jill Stewart. And I'm an academic based at the London School of Economics. I'm an expert in the politics, ethics, and law of outer space exploration and exploitation. So there are a handful of treaties that govern outer space. The most applicable when it comes to space junk are the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, the Liability Convention of 1972, and the Registration Convention of 1974. And what these three treaties do is they say that outer space is neutral territory and that any object launched into outer space is the responsibility of the launching country and that any object that does damage um, in outer space or on Earth from outer space is the responsibility of the launching country. But there's no real enforcement mechanism for these rules. So why does anyone follow them? Jill says that basically it's because they don't want to look bad. The best reason that I can come up with is that I think that particularly when it comes to outer space, which a lot of countries, people's, um, their citizenry, have sort of romantic ideas about and they don't want to see their countries as their governments as violating these treaties. So they have a strong sense of, of wanting to be seen as legitimate in the ways that they're acting in outer space. So far, there hasn't really been a case where a collision has required adjudication. In the case of Iridium and Cosmos, nobody decided to protest the collision. In another case, the collision wound up being a little bit of an own goal. In the 1996, there was, it was interesting, you may have come across this case of the French satellite that was damaged by a piece of debris, and the French were very angry about this until they realized that it had come from, the debris was from another French satellite, or a rocket booster, I believe it was. And so, um, but that was meant to be one of the first test cases, but it wasn't carried out, ultimately. But at some point, there probably will be a situation in which two things collide, and we have to figure out who is responsible. And when that happens, there will be a few key things at play. First, today's modern spacecraft are all insured. Because space objects are so incredibly expensive, there was just a, a really basic financial concern. So if two objects were to collide in space, there was going to be a massive bill, and we needed to think about who was going to pay for that. So you'll have insurance companies involved in what happens next. So it might wind up being a little bit like one of those chain reaction fender benders where one car in the back crashes into a string of cars who kind of bump each other down the line. Usually when that happens, the first car, the one that hit everybody, has to pay the damage for every car in that chain reaction. But with space junk, once you've tracked down what piece of debris started the collision, 
you might still wind up in, I guess, a little bit of a tangle. It used to be that things launched into space came from a single country and usually their national space program. But now things are a lot more complicated. You have multinational corporations. So you might have an object that's been launched into space um, with, on a rocket that was produced in one country. Um, it might be a satellite that's privately owned. It may have been launched from the high seas on a ship that was produced in a completely different country. Nobody predicted this when they made the rules in the 1960s and 70s. And Jill has argued that the current laws surrounding space should be updated to reflect this more complicated reality. Because if they aren't, it's possible that space's climate, I guess, could wind up just as messed up as Earth's. I think it's uh, like uh, climate change in this, in a sense, uh, because it requires very often uh, international agreement. And it's very easy to hide behind the, the fact that some countries are not applying to say, ah, if the others don't apply, then they have competitive advantage and we're losing, and etc. So we see these arguments all the time. Jill is actually more optimistic. The outer space environment absolutely has the potential to be a tragedy of the commons type environment. But what my research has found is that actually entities and individuals that are involved in outer space activity are fully capable of coordinating their activity partly because of the fact that they're aware that if they, everyone is contributing to the destruction of the environment there, then no one will be able to use it. Okay, but what about this? What if I was an eccentric billionaire who decided that after all of my years of polluting the outer space environment, I wanted to put my money into building a giant space Roomba that could just suck up all the space junk out there and incinerate it or something? Well, in this situation, uh, I would probably get into trouble pretty quickly because it turns out you can't just go up there and start pulling things down willy-nilly. And uh, of course, there are some restrictions on satellites, especially that use uh, restricted hardware that cannot be uh, touched or known or seen by other uh, other countries. And this, uh, here I'm not even only speaking about defense satellites, even in commercial ones. And I can't just go around scooping up other people's satellites if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> so if there can be a situation where you develop, as you say, a space Roomba that could go up to hoover up some of this debris, that we could find, figure out a way to unpack the legal situation so that you wouldn't be overly disincentivized to do that. But at the same time, I mean, the rules are there for good reason. You also don't want it to be a free-for-all. You don't want it to be a free-for-all, for sure. But you also don't want it to be so hard to do that nobody even tries to clean the stuff up, right? Considering that it is junk and that ultimately we want to incentivize companies to think about wanting to go up there and take it down. Let's say you go up there and try to take something down and then accidentally knock it off orbit and then it goes and causes an accident. Then does that company have it's almost like we need a good Samaritan law for space of if you're trying to take something out of orbit and it causes an accident, then there's some sort of um, mitigation. And again, we don't have any test cases on this, and so I think it's not entirely clear. One way that cleaning up all of this space junk might be incentivized is if people figure out how to actually use it and turn it into a valuable resource. There are a variety of proposals for how to gather up space junk, condense it down, separate out the components, and actually sell those back to companies. 
That's still really early work, but if that works, then there's money to be made in my space Roomba idea. But for now, my harebrained scheme of a space Roomba is probably not actually a very good idea. Plus, I'm sure that Alice, our space archaeologist, would have some choice words for me if I just started hoovering up all the stuff out there. But this is a future that you're actually about to see come to fruition. Pretty soon, there will be test missions to try and remove space junk. And what happens next is going to get weird and probably pretty interesting. And if you do want to start a space Roomba company, call me. I'm in. That's all for this episode. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The space dispatcher from the top of the episode was played by Andrew Hackard. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send me a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. They're so fun. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. But if financial giving is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review or just tell your friends about the show. That really, really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one. Divert your course 300 meters to avoid a collision. Recommend you divert your course 300 meters to avoid a collision. This is the science director for the TK station. I say again, divert your course. No, I say again, you divert your course. This is the space station Starthinker, the second largest ship in the United States space fleet. We are accompanied by 14 CubeSats, 7 probes, 2 magnetic sails, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 300 meters. That's 300 meters, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. This is the moon. Your call.